Hey friends, welcome back to another Friday solo episode show of the pod. I thought I would switch gears. I've spent a lot of time recently talking about uh, real estate and personal finance and build business building. And I thought I'd switch gears and tell you a story about lessons I learned from a $4.3 million verdict that I won last year. This is my first trial back after the pandemic happened in April of 2022. Coincidentally, it happened right down the hallway in the same courthouse as the Johnny Depp trial. I tell myself that my staff came to watch me, but I know that part of them was coming to try to catch a glimpse of Johnny and Amber in the hallway. Anyway, this is um uh, really one of the first uh, podcast episodes where I'm going to get into some of the lawyering that we've done on this lawyering podcast. I hope you enjoy it. So here it is, the story of the biggest case that I've ever won. Welcome to Time Freedom for Lawyers, where the goal is to become less busy, make more money, and spend more time doing what you want instead of what you have to. Bringing together guests from all walks of life, who are living a life of their own design and sharing actionable tips for how you too can live the life of your dreams. Now, here's your host, Brian Glass. All right, so this is the story of, of this case. It's a drunk driving um, auto accident case. My client was about 25 at the time of the crash. She'd been watching movies with her boyfriend and was driving back to her parents' house where she lived um, and she's not the drunk driver, by the way, the drunk driver, he's, he drives home from a casino in Maryland and he drives about 30 minutes back to uh, Burke, Virginia. And what I told the, the jury in my opening statement was that really, this is the story of like how quickly and how stupidly your life can be changed by somebody else's actions. Because she, over the course of that night had traveled 15 miles, he'd traveled like 17 miles and they have this chance meeting um, just outside of really just outside of where either one of them lived. Like if you plot their, their course on a map, he had another like three quarters of a mile to go to his house. She had another mile to go to her house and it, through absolute sheer bad, dumb luck or, or whatever, you know, fate of the universe, like their paths crossed, he crossed the double yellow line, smashed her head on. Um, killed her dog and then it caused just catastrophic damage to her insides um, and put her in the hospital for a month uh, and really, really ruined her life. I won't get into all of her injuries, but she had a vertebral fracture. She had a couple of rib uh, broken ribs. Her major injury was really an internal degloving injury um, of her organs shearing off the skin and off the fat that kind of holds everything in place. And then she had some tears in her colon and in her intestine that required multiple surgeries. She had like 11 surgeries and required her to wear an ostomy bag for, ah, uh, God, I've, I've forgotten now because it's been seven, seven or eight months since I tried this case. Um, but she wore the ostomy bag, I think for a year. And even at the time of trial, which is three years after this crash actually happened, she still had a 22 centimeter hernia in the dead center of her chest. Um, and because she'd had a couple of operations was, is really, really high risk for, okay, if we go in and do any more operations, we're not sure whether we'll be able to close, close up the stomach muscles in a way that will provide you any meaningful benefit. And so there's a lot of risk when you're going under for any surgery. Um, but when there's not a tangible benefit coming on the other side, doctors are sometimes hesitant to do that. So she's in a place, you know, at, at 28, 
three years after the crash where she's got a real permanent injury for the rest of her life, has been through a living hell, bandage changes, ostomy bag changes. Um, she had a great, a phenomenal support system, which I think is probably the only reason she'd made it out the other side. Her boyfriend was phenomenal um, and her family was was wonderful and just wonderful to work with throughout the course of this trial and develop all of the ways in which this injury had impacted her life. Um, so this is uh, – it was the first case that I tried back after the pandemic. It's April of 21 and so, geez, it probably had been a solid 18 months since I'd tried a case. We didn't have any jury trials in Virginia in 2020. Um, and, you know, uh, and I guess my my last trial before that was probably spring of 2019 was my last jury trial. I may have tried a couple of judge bench trials in the fall. Um but, you know, as a, as a personal injury lawyer, like we don't get to try cases all the time. We're not like criminal defense lawyers. My practice is not very trial heavy. And so – but going two years in between trials, that, that was a lot. And so I was nervous about like what have I forgotten uh, how to do. And I one of the things that I said to the jury early on was exactly that. Like, listen, <laughs> um, this is your first trial probably, jury. It's my first trial in two years. And so, I, you know, if you – uh, say something strange during voir dire, like fine. If I say something strange during voir dire, like um, just forgive me. And I stumbled a little bit and before I got my feet under me and really, I think, ramped up throughout the course of that trial and got better and better and better every time I stood up. But that's one of them is like one of the things I learned is trial is kind of like riding a bike. But if you haven't done it in a while, you can forget um, – a lot of the skills. So it's important as a trial lawyer to be in there trying cases on a regular basis, especially if you're going to be trying big cases like this. So that's one lesson for really a fairly minor lesson. So what I've got for you today is like what I think of the five chief lessons that I learned during that trial that I think are important for young lawyers to hear, especially if you're a young lawyer who hasn't tried a lot of cases. And if you're in a position where you haven't tried a lot of cases or you've second chaired cases, but you haven't, um, you haven't been the lead attorney, you know, there are fewer and fewer and fewer circuit court, um, jury trials, civil jury trials every year in every state. And Virginia is, is no exception. And so the opportunities, number one, to try these cases are, are fewer and further between, but also the opportunities to just like go and watch somebody else try a case. You learn so much from going and watching other people's cases. So the early tip that I would give you is like just go sit in the back of a courtroom and take mental reps. Make objections in your head. Ask better questions in your head. Try to formulate the next question before it comes out of the lawyer's mouth. Um, just like you, if you were a backup quarterback or like a third-string quarterback, mentally trying to stay in the game if you don't have a trial on the horizon. That's something that I've done that I think is very important. Um, anyway, let me get into my five tips. Number, number one tip, don't let them derail you. If you have a good case and you're marching towards trial, there are going to be things that the defense does that gets in your way that can um, delay justice and and just don't let them do it. So one of the things that happened in this case is that after 23 months or so of litigation, the defendant who still somehow had a pending criminal charge, he had a criminal DUI charge still, um, he moved to continue the civil trial based on Fifth Amendment rights. He didn't want to be called to testify and incriminate himself. 
And this is despite the fact, and I won't get too far into the legal weeds here, despite the fact that he'd filed an answer in the case, he'd answered discovery in the case, and he'd sat for a deposition. And so at the continuance hearing, I said to the judge, judge, I I think he's waived his Fifth Amendment rights. Like Brian is no constitutional (laughs) or criminal law scholar, but I don't think you can answer a lawsuit, answer discovery, sit for a deposition, answer all kinds of questions about this, and then refuse to answer the same questions in a courthouse. I lost that argument. I I think I was right. I think the judge was wrong. Um, But at the end of the day, a lot of the things that happen at the trial level are not appealable. So even though I lost, I couldn't go to the uh, Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals in Virginia and ask them to overrule that judge and give me the original trial date. What I thought was really um, BS about when they made this continuance is that it was about like three weeks before we were set to go to trial. So I had all my experts lined up. I, I was able to avoid incurring additional costs, but it was a pain in the ass to have to move everything to be really ready to go on this trial and then have the case continued for what I thought was a BS reason. The other thing that they did in this case to try to derail us was about three days before trial, the defense lawyer called me and said, uh, I'm counseling my my client, the defendant, to declare bankruptcy. Um, and this is a nonsense move. Um, again, we're three years into the litigation. Her fear was, where you're going to get a verdict that's over and above his insurance policy, he's going to be personally responsible for it. And so I'm going to counsel him to talk to a bankruptcy lawyer to discharge this litigation and to discharge his responsibilities to your client after you get the verdict. And I said to her, well, you, you know that you can't discharge a bankrupt. You can't discharge a verdict that's because of an injury that you caused because you were driving drunk. That's like one of the very few exceptions in the bankruptcy code. It's right up there with you can't discharge your student loans. Um, and she recognized that and she said, well, we might try anyway. I said, okay, go ahead and try it. And, and that was a bluff. Uh, to try to get us to settle the case within the policy limits. It didn't work. But the number one thing is like knowing the law and making sure that the defense tactics don't derail you. Second thing I learned during this trial is, um, and, and one reason that I think I would be good probably as a defense lawyer, although it doesn't pay as well and it's probably not as fun, is the art of catching people in a lie. So all my career I have been trying these cases where I have clients with small accidents, prior injuries, delayed treatment. And as a plaintiff's lawyer, those are the cases you end up trying because those are the ones that are not easy to settle. And those are the cases where it's just rife for not necessarily a client lying about it, but it's rife for a client's memory not being so good that they did, in fact, have a prior accident that they didn't tell you about. Or they did, in fact, have some prior treatment to their back. Or they did, in fact, go like, I don't know, bouncing at a trampoline park, uh, even when their doctor had told them not to. And so being on the offensive, being able to ask a defendant about these kinds of things and catching them in lies, that's a lot of fun. And it's an art form. So I want to tell you about one of the lies that the defendant told in our case. So in our case, his the defense, there were really two defenses. Number one was I wasn't as drunk as the blood alcohol test said I was. And I'll come back around to that one. And number two was, it wasn't the fact that I was drunk that caused this crash. It was the fact that I was driving too fast that I lost control. And so as he went down this line of, I was driving too fast and that's really what caused me to lose control of my car. He said the reason that he was driving fast is because he had to be at work the next day 
and he was tired and he just wanted to get home and go to bed. Um, but then he also let slip that, you know, he had stopped at a gas station and bought, I don't know, some, some soda or something and filled his gas tank. And so then we got into like, man, if you were really that worried about getting home really fast, you probably wouldn't have done all of these other things. I think maybe he bought some cigarettes or something also. You probably wouldn't have taken all of this extra time at the gas station. You probably just like would have gone home. At the end of their day, I think jury trials sadly turn into popularity contests. Like the evidence can be what the evidence is, but at the end of the day, it you have to have a client who is likable and who a jury can get behind and having clients that tell little stupid lies like that um, is a really big problem. And so, you know, I tell my clients all the time, what we've got to do is protect the small box of things that are really important to our case. And if there are things that are outside of that box that you think might help the case, but aren't entirely truthful or like somebody can poke some holes or somebody can suggest that there might be some holes poked in it. We're not going to say that on the stand. Um, because if you say I really needed to get home really fast and that's why I was speeding because I wanted to go to sleep so that I could get up and have a great day at work the next day. But then the lawyer finds out that you'd stop for gas and cigarettes and a soda. Things are not going to work out well for you and that defense. And they didn't, but there's a skill here also as a lawyer. And this is lesson number three, but as a lawyer is actively listening for the small details that are said by a witness on the stand and then figuring out whether you should press those details or not. And I've got two examples for this. So one of the things that came up um, during this trial is his blood alcohol was a, either a 1.5 or a 1.6. It was just over the, the, the punitive damages legal limit. And I had talked to the police officer and done – uh, done some digging in the file, I think, in, in the criminal file. And um, and the police officer had made a note that there was a little airline mini bottle of Fireball that he'd found during the investigation of the scene. And so the defense didn't know about that because her client hadn't told her <laughs> about the airline mini of Fireball. So I asked the question of this guy on the stand, and or the police officer, and he's talking, did you find anything else in the car? Oh, yeah, I found this whiskey bottle. And knowing that it was an airline bottle, I didn't ask what size was it. I just said, what kind was it? Um, and so we left the jury, you know, the evidence in the case was there was a, um, there was a bottle of fireball somewhere in the car. And so the defense lawyer gets up and starts asking questions about control of the scene. And did the officer always have control of the, the, the crime scene as it were? And, then asked us what I thought was a really stupid question about, well, is there any possibility that somebody else might have come and put things in the car? He said, I, you know, like maybe. Well, could anybody else have come and put the bottle of fireball in the driver's door well? And he's like, maybe. And, <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that's a possibility. And so I got up in closing and I said to the jury, uh, like the suggestion uh, in this case was all about taking accountability or not taking accountability. So I said, you know, at every turn, this guy has not taken accountability for his actions, even so far as to have his lawyer suggest that there might've been some fireball fairy walking around the scene, dropping, um, dropping little airline minis of whiskey into the passenger door. Well, and so, you know, there, there are questions that as a lawyer you ask and that you don't ask. And that was one that she should not have asked. 
the the defense in this case really was that um, the hospital blood draw, and this will get a little bit technical. The hospital blood draw was done on blood serum and not on whole blood. And that when you test whole blood for blood alcohol, you get a lower percentage than if you had tested the same sample on serum. And so their toxicologist was suggesting that because the test was done on serum and returned a 0.15, in order to find out what his actual blood alcohol concentration was, you needed to te- you needed to apply a conversion ratio. And it really was a 1-2 or a 1-3 on whole blood. And so if that's super technical, uh, I'm sorry. There's a the reason is that the one five standard is very important to us being able to get punitive damages in this case. Well, he he made the mistake then, and and we had no evidence in the case. There was no nurse from the hospital or or anybody from the hospital blood lab to say what the blood was actually tested on. Uh, which is the point that I was making is is you know we don't actually know was it on serum or was it on whole blood. All we know is that we have this test. And you're the one suggesting, you know, that it was on some other substance and that a conversion ratio has to be applied. And so you really have the burden of proving that uh, that it was on that. And one of the things that he said in support of the idea that it was on serum and not on whole blood is that you have to do this test, to, I think, to distill whole blood. And that takes a long time. And in a hospital setting, you don't have time to do that kind of a test. So it must have been on serum. And he said, you know, the tests that are done on whole blood is like a complete blood panel is done on whole blood. And I knew that on the very same page that said what this guy's blood alcohol concentration was, there was a test that was done on whole blood. And I did not ask that question of that expert because the test was in evidence because I didn't know the answer to the question of like, is that the, are we talking about the same thing or not? Um, but the very next test on this page, uh, this medical page, which was in evidence was that, uh, it was a complete blood panel test. And so rather than ask the question, I accepted the evidence that was in evidence. And I argued to the jury at the end, Hey, did everybody hear what he said? Everybody said, Everybody heard him say it must have been on whole blood or it must have been on serum because serum is like a stat test and a complete blood panel is not a stat test. Well, let's take a look at this piece of paper that's in evidence. And actually the, the CBC, the complete blood panel, that one comes back before the alcohol test does. So can that guy know what he's talking about? At the end of the day, I, I still don't know what the actual scientific um, answer to that question is. Um, but I do know that the facts that were in evidence, let me argue that way to the jury. And so, you know, as a lawyer thinking about what questions should I ask and having a good sense of what questions you should not ask, uh, is, is something it's a skill and it's an art that's honed over many, many trials. All right. Number four. Um, and I learned this when I was trying a med mal case in 2019. Um, it's, and I was trying it with, a, a another much more experienced lawyer than me. And that is to back off the throttle and bulletproof your verdict when you think things are going well. So as a plaintiff's lawyer, you you really you often get one shot at trying a case, right? Um, and I say that because it costs a lot of money to try these cases. And I'm the one oftentimes that's funding these cases. And so if it costs twenty five dollars or $50,000 to put a case on with experts and the defense – and I win and the defense appeals – and I've got to come back and try it again. I don't get that money back. I've got to spend another twenty-five dollars or $50,000 on experts. 
The defense, on the other hand, is funded by an insurance company with much deeper pockets than Brian has. And so it's, you know, quote unquote, nothing for a defense lawyer and their team to put on a case twice with twenty five, fifty thousand dollars in costs, at least comparative comparatively speaking to us. And so as you get deeper and deeper into a trial and things are going your way and you're making objections that are uh, that are not slam dunk objections, then you want to think about arguing those less and less strenuously as you get more and more feeling like you're going to win the trial. Let me give you an example. So like I said, all we were arguing about in this case really was, is he over the 0.15 standard or not? And um, and I'd sent requests for admissions that to admit that his blood was over that limit. And they responded that, yes, yes, it was. Um, and I don't think that when they responded, they'd actually thought deeply about trial strategy. And, and anyway, they tried to back out of that, obviously, by presenting evidence that it wasn't. And so I'd made a motion to strike that evidence. And the judge said, well, I really don't think it's for substantive matters. And and I think the rule says it probably is. But I don't actually know the answer of whether it is or whether it isn't. And things were going my way. <laughs> and I didn't want to create an appellate issue and then have to come back and try this case a second time. And I thought I was going to win the issue, you know, in front of the jury anyway. So I backed off. I said, okay, judge, we'll, we'll withdraw that and we'll just move on. Um, and in that way, just preventing appellate issues from even coming up in your trial, I call that bulletproofing your verdict. Like our job at the end of the day is to get a, a number that isn't subject to appeal and to get the check into our client's hands. And that's what we did there. All right. Number five, and, and this is the last one. And so thank you for sticking around until the end of this. Um, number five is, man, it is a lot of fun to be watched. Like as lawyers, we put in a lot of work into our cases and oftentimes our friends and our family and even our staff, they don't get to see the payoff of any of it. And so I, I said at the outset, uh, this case started on the same day as the Johnny Depp trial, Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial in Fairfax County. And so my wife, uh, who had his in-between job, she'd quit her earlier job and she was coming to work for me. She came and she watched a couple of days of our trial. Uh, my staff came and they watched um, opening and closing and some cross-examination in my trial. Now, they were popping down the hallway to try to make eyes at Johnny Depp. And I've since forgiven them but not forgotten about that. Um, but it is really, really nice to have support of your friends and family and show them a little insight into your world. Because I think a lot of times they have no appreciation and it's not their fault. It's not like we're going to their job and watching them, but really have no appreciation for the art and the science and the hard work that we put in. So if you can, I would suggest that you uh, always, always, always invite your staff to your trials. Your staff wants to see your trials. Uh, your staff wants to see the payoff of their work also, and your staff can be a good buffer between you and the client. I know that sometimes at trial I get stressed out and I don't want to be around the client and you can send the staff to go be friendly with the client. Um, but also like your, your family, like parents, siblings who, you know, whoever is, is available. If you have something that's interesting for them to watch, I think it's a good thing to invite them to come and watch you do your work and it's important work and it's good for them to be able to see it. And so at the end of this case, we got a, a $4.3 million verdict, uh, $3.3 million in compensatory damages for my client who had about a half million dollars in medical costs and had gone through 11 surgeries. 
and a million dollars in punitive damages. The million dollars in punitive damages were, were fairly confident tied the record for a, a drunk driving auto accident case in Virginia. So that's pretty cool. It was reduced because Virginia has a cap on punitive damages. It was reduced to three fifty. Um, but as a jury award, we think that million dollars is a is a tie of the record. So that four point three million dollar case, it's the largest case that I've ever tried. It was a, a wonderful payoff for a wonderful client with a great family. And and that makes that makes really all the hard work that we put into it worth it. Um all of my meta visuals and stuff, all of that stuff is still in my office. The uh the verdict form is hanging on my wall. It's important that we keep these mementos of our of our cases around to remind us of the good work that we've done when things get hard. So that's it. I hope you enjoyed this lessons from a from a big ass verdict. Um if if you do, if you don't, let me know either way. Let me know if I should do more of these uh what happens in the law kinds of episodes. I think they're fun. I hope you do too. Have a good weekend. Hey guys, if this kind of stuff resonates with you and you want to hear more from me and my friends, please subscribe. It would be also really helpful if you would leave us a rating and a review wherever you're listening to podcasts. Thanks a lot. I'll see you next time.